continuing our study in Matthew chapter 24, and we're looking at our handout. We are in verse number 31, Matthew chapter 24. In verse number 31, let's go ahead in and dive in. The Bible says, And he shall send his angels with a, with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of earth to the other. This gathering language I have on your handout here, this gathering language is bringing the Jews and Gentiles into one location. Let's go ahead and look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah 27, Jesus is alluding to Isaiah chapter 27. And look, if you would, in verses 12 and 13. Um, let me see if I want to go back just a second before that. It's hard to give a full uh, context here and, and also be somewhat brief. Well, let's just focus on 12 and 13 so we don't rabbit trail too far. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river onto the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one. O ye children of Israel, shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. So we have this idea that when Messiah comes, there will be a gathering together and we'll hear the, a, drum, a great trumpet being blown. So this is Isaiah 27 talk that, is, that Jesus is alluding to here in Matthew chapter 24. So this gathering idea uh, that Jesus is explaining here is bringing the Jews and Gentiles into one location. Something, of course, we're familiar with is the dividing wall of the temple is now gone. In other words, this, this, uh, this idea of uh, there being a division, Christ broke down divisions. When he was crucified, there was a division marker that came down in the temple. It was this veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the other rooms. Now you have access to the Holy of Holies, where his presence is because of his great sacrifice for us. Look over at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he says, Wherefore, remember that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh. So it's important that, that we understand that Paul is speaking here to the Gentiles. This is not uh, an inherently Jewish church. This is this is actually a, a Gentile, a church made up of Gentiles. There's probably some Jewish believers there. But Paul is making the point here that in verse number 11, he says, Remember, you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the, the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. In other words, what he's saying there is if somebody can grab a knife and make the uncircumcised circumcised, he says, in, those, in that instances, these are called uncircumcision according to the flesh. Verse number 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they had no claim to this movement called Israel. They were aliens. They were not part of the citizenship. And then it says, Paul goes on to say, and strangers from the covenants of promise. They weren't a part of the, the Abrahamic covenant. They weren't a part of the commonwealth of Israel. They had no hope, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, 
in Christ Jesus, you uh, who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. See, see the difference there in verses 12 and 13? In 12, you were not part of Israel. You were not citizens. You had no hope. You were strangers from the covenants. But now indicates a change, verse 13. But now something's happened. But now in Christ, if I can add it for our sake, in Christ, which is the true Israel, you are now in the true Israel. You were, uh, sometimes were far off. Now you've been made close or you've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. It was through the, through the sacrifice of Christ that you were a stranger from Israel and, and not part of the commonwealth or the house, but now you're part of the house. Verse 14, for he is our peace, meaning Jesus, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He's a gathering God. He's, he's a God that took the division of the Bible, the division between the Jews and Gentiles, the division between common man and holy God. He broke down that wall and he's a gathering God now and in, in, in when the Messiah comes. He is abolished, verse 15, in his flesh, the enmity or the division of the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man. So making peace. This is a peaceful idea. When Christ is a gathering Messiah, it's a peaceful idea. Divisions are what you do in war. Christ came to win the war and to steal back the dominion that Satan had. And he did that. Think about the Berlin Wall. It was a good day when the wall came down. It's a terrifying day when, it put, when it's put up. Walls are controlling. Walls divide. Walls are used by those that are trying to keep you from having freedom. In, in general senses, I'm saying. Christ is the one that tore down the wall of division in the temple. And you have access to God. So it says here in verse 16, Paul concludes that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. This is something that our dispensationalist friends really struggle with. They, they still have a division between Jew and Gentile. They still see those as two completely separate people groups. We are one in Christ. There's no such thing as a division or a difference between, and I'm speaking covenantally here, between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference. There is nothing coming in the future uh, f distinctly for a Jewish covenant that we don't have in Christ. He is the end-all, be-all. Christ's uh, uh, sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. That, and that, uh, we don't say that enough. We don't say this enough when we're talking about our point of view. What we need to get people to understand in our point of view with covenant theology is that the efficacy is one of the words we use. The efficiency or the power of Christ's coming means we don't need him to do anything else. That I, and I never clued in on that when I was a dispensationalist. That I was saying, out of one side of my mouth, I was saying that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and it is finished. And then the other side of my mouth, I was saying, and he's going to come again to take care of Israel. And so I believe that what we're teaching now in understanding this through a post-millennial lens, is, is actually promoting the efficacy of the cross, saying he, he's our champion. He's already done all that's necessary for his kingdom to flourish. He's already done the work. And I think that that is something that we need to be clearer about when we're discussing our point of view, is that we believe in the total efficacy of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And if somebody says he needs to come again and do more work, 
then I would challenge that and say he's already done so much. In John chapter 11, let's look there because this is important. Because so many people will say that this gathering language is for the second coming. But we see that, and, and the whole point of this thing, just to kind of pan back for a second, is I'm trying to make the case that the gathering language actually applies to his first coming. In John chapter 11, verses 47 through 52, we read, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we, for this man d does many miracles? If we will let him thus alone, all the men will believe on him. <laughs> we wouldn't want that. And the Romans should come and, and take away both our place and nation. Right? And one of them, named Caiaphas, being a high priest the same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. And this uh, spake he not of himself, being the high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus should die for the na that nation, and not for that nation only. Isn't this interesting? But that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. He's a gathering God, and this is a, talking about his first advent, not his second coming. The Lord also instructs Moses at Mount Sinai to gather the people. So this, is, this has been his desire the entire time. In Exodus chapter 19, in verses 10 through 13, the Lord said to Moses, Go unto the people, sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come in in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai, and that shall set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourself that you go not up unto the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There's so, so much significance in verse 12 there. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall be sure, uh, surely be stoned or shot, uh, or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. This is a reference to understanding the holiness of God and when his presence is there. Uh, this is just a really powerful, powerful text. So God is a, dividing, uh, a gathering God. In fact, I don't have this in your handout. We've already gone over this, but let me show you another place, Matthew 23. In fact, this is when we did our study in our context. This was the previous chapter, Matthew 23. And remember what he says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that thou killest the prophets, stone them which are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. He's saying, I've been trying to gather you guys the whole time. It's my desire to gather you but you would, were not willing. And so as a result of that in verse 38, your house, meaning the temple, is left unto you desolate. So when is the temple made desolate? Well, Christ just said it right there. His presence was gone in verse 38. Verse 39, For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till, they shall, uh, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So God came, when Messiah came, he came as a gathering Messiah. And so there's no reason for anybody to say that this is talking about his second coming when over and over again we see that his desire is to gather and that it says, in fact, it's stated clearly that he came to gather and to divide, take away the dividing wall of partition. Verse number 32 and 33, 
Now, as we read, let me read our handout first because I think this is fascinating. Our handout says many dispensationalists see this as Israel becoming a nation again in 1948. That's how they read this passage. Again, let's, we, we should probably say a quick illustration. Uh, I, when we were in the car on the way over, I was thinking through, through this. This is something I'm learning. I'm, in fact, I'm going to put this on the board as we're talking because I think this is important. So on the board here, I'm going to put a line down the middle of the board. And, and right here, I'm just going to say, this, these are the plain words that somebody speaks. These are, as we say sometimes, these are the facial sense of the words. In other words, um, if I were to say to you, um, if I were to say to you, hey guys, uh, John was just talking to me, and John said to me, said to me hey guys, uh, I'm really hungry. I think after this we should go get some food. Okay, and then John leaves the room. And then I say to you guys, I said, hey guys, just want you to know something. John's hungry, and after this he wants to go and get some food. And somebody in the room says, are you serious? You really think that's what that means? And I said, well, that's what he said. Now, I'm taking it as the facial sense, what it means on its, on its face. It's the plain meaning you would take it anywhere. I think the guy's hungry and he wants to get some food after this. And somebody comes to me and they say, you don't understand. Uh, John loves to read books. And he told me one time that he can devour a book in one sitting. It means he likes to read. And after this, he wants to curl up by a fire and go and read. So what I would do in my mind is I would, I would say, okay, if the very center of this is me repeating the word saying, I think he's hungry, he wants to eat food. And if somebody says, that actually means I think... I think it means books. He actually is saying he wants to go and read. I would call that a deviation or a separation from the plain sense of the words. It's something you'd have to interpret to get that interpretation. And so I would say the further away from the center line of the facial sense, you have what I would say, you have some lifting to do. In other words, you have some work to do to show me that's what he really means. If he said he's hungry and wants food after this, and somebody wants to make the case that what he really means is he wants to read a book, you have some work to do. Now, the further away from this line you get, let's just say person two comes in and says, you're both wrong. What it really means is that he's not hungry at all. He, it means he hates food. You're even further away from the books guy. You have exponentially more heavy lifting to do. Now we're even further from what the books guy says. So here I am reading Matthew chapter 24. There is no indication of the second coming. It doesn't say that. The facial sense of the meaning is what we're talking about. It's the facial sense of the meaning. The plain sense is that the disciples asked him a question and he's answering it. If you get away from that, you have some heavy lifting to do. If you're going to tell me that this verse, verses 32 and 33, is Israel becoming a nation again when that is not what it says. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just simply saying you have some heavy lifting to do because it's away from the plain reading of the text. Jesus says here, now learn a parable of the fig tree. Now he's been talking about fig trees a lot in his ministry. And he's telling them they need to learn of this parable. 
Now, what's the plain sense of the meaning of this text? The disciples asked him, when are you going to destroy the temple? That's the question we're answering from verse 3. So he says, listen, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer's nigh. So you can actually read the seasons based on what a fig tree is doing. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. He says, hey, you guys know how you can tell what season it is by what state the tree is in? Just like that, you guys are going to be able to read what season we're in by the signs that I've given you. For what? The destruction of the temple. That's the topic. That's the facial sense of, of the words. It's the plain reading of the text. And he's just simply on the same topic. No new topic has been introduced. Our dispensationalist friends want us to see verses 32 and 33 as this is being Israel becoming a nation again. And what they are saying is, learn the parable of the fig tree. They say, the fig tree is Israel. And they say, when his branches yet tender puts forth his leaves, you'll let summer is nigh. Uh, and they're saying, see, we need to see the fig tree begin to blossom again. It was dead, and now we want to see it blossoming again. And if it's, and if it's becoming a nation in 1948, then it's starting to blossom again. And now we know these things are about to happen. That is far-fetched from the center line of the plain reading, and they have some heavy lifting to do. And so let me make their heavy lifting impossible lifting. If this is Israel, the nation of Israel, because it's the parable of the fig tree singular, let's go ahead and head over to our parallel passage of this in Luke chapter 21. Remember, Luke, we're not using Luke 21 because it's not quite as comprehensive as Matthew 24, but it does have some information that Matthew 24 doesn't have. So in Luke chapter 21, Verse number 29, we see the sister passage of this, and this is how Luke records it. Luke adds a little bit that Matthew didn't, and see if you can catch it. Remember what their argument is. The fig tree is Israel, and that's 1948 prophecy. So Jesus says in Luke 21, a little information that's extra. Verse 29, see if you can catch it. He spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. Now, if your main thrust of making the fig tree Israel is it's uniquely becoming a nation in 1948, and you're straying from the plain facial sense of the words in this center line and going so far out there, you have some heavy lifting to do. Well, I just handed you a rock that you're not capable of lifting because now this is now applying to all the trees. If the singular fig tree is the nation of Israel coming back into prophecy in 1948, then that must be true for all the nations of the world, thereby negating the importance or significance of the single fig tree. Jesus isn't talking about a single nation becoming a nation in 1948. He's using the fig tree, although that is used of Israel in the Bible, but he's using that as an example that you can see seasons of something coming. So Jesus says, and all the trees in verse 30, well, they now shoot forth, you see that you know of yourselves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. And then look, just, just, just in case you don't miss it, you want another huge rock that you have to carry for your heavy lifting. Verily I say to you again, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. That's in Luke 21. So now you have the singular tree turning into multiple trees, and it's going to happen in this generation, Jesus says. So 
Luke, on your handout, I put Luke reminds us that it is a sign that something is going to happen. And it's all trees, not just the tree. So this is, so let's get to the, the, real, the real dagger. Here's a, here's a dagger right in the heart of a futurist interpretation. Meaning those that believe this is going to happen in our future. Verily I say to you, verse 34, verily I say to you, we just read it, Luke 21. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. The, I can't tell you the amount of times I've seen people dance around this thing. You think, you think you're talking to Fred Astaire when you have people trying to explain away verse 34. Notice that Jesus uses the near demonstrative, this generation. Jesus is a smart guy. He's our creator. <laughs> I think he knows the difference between this and that. If this is speaking of a future generation and he's talking to the disciples, why would he not say that generation, a far demonstrative? But he chooses the word this generation, near demonstrative. That's because I think he's talking about this generation that's alive while he's speaking. And by the way, here's what's interesting. The phrase this generation is used over and over and over again. And I, and I have a, I made a video about this that's on YouTube. And I don't understand why this is even a topic. When this generation is used, every time that's used previously, everybody is unanimously in agreement. It's about the generation that's, being, that's alive during the time the speech is going on. This generation, this generation, over and over again. But when we get to Matthew 24, 34, the argument is the word generation means race. And that, because it's, it's like within three, three letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so this generation means race. And so they say this generation is the, the whole race of Israel. And so as long as there's one person alive that still has the ethnicity of Israel, verse 34 hasn't ended yet. So they read it like this. Verily I say to you, this race of people, meaning Israel, will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And we see people from Israel today. Therefore, these things haven't happened. The word race or people group in the Bible is not the same as generation. It's not the same word. The people who are saying that, there's two options. They're either ignorant of Greek or Hebrew, or they are lying to you, one of the two, because those aren't the same word at all. On no gloss on the planet, no gloss has that as the same word or even close to the same word. It doesn't mean people group. It means what Jesus said. It's generation. I won't Take the time to go into the Greek there because none of us know what it's supposed to say and it doesn't matter. But if you want to do a word study on that, uh, look up generation and it is absolutely not the same as race or people group. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12 real quickly. Uh, Matthew 12 and uh, while we're turning there, let's go ahead and we'll take just a few minutes break, come back and we'll, we'll finish this up. We're leaving off at Matthew 12. We'll come right back. <laughs> 